This morning, we're going to kick off a study on spiritual warfare. The name of the study is going to be Knowing Your Enemy. I'm going to spend a few weeks preaching in all three services. I think this is a very important subject. As I witness as a pastor and simply as a husband, father, friend, brother, um, just the variety and the intensity and the volume of brokenness and evil that is all around us. God's word says this about this battle. Just listen as I read Paul in Ephesians. He says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil and the heavenly places. It's an amazing statement that is in the word of God. This church believes from the beginning of this book to the end that this is all God's word. It is God breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. And Paul, after he writes this incredible statement of grace, tells the church of Ephesus near the end of his letter, there is an invisible war, and it is real. Peter, writing his first letter, he speaks about the battle as well. He speaks about the devil. He says in verse 8 of chapter 5 of 1 Peter, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And we are experiencing it. This church believes in this evil, believes in a real devil, believes in demons, believes in this spiritual war. In 1965, Donald Gray Barnhouse, the pastor then of 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, wrote a book called The Invisible War. In the preface, it says this, although almost entirely unrecognized by mankind, this warfare affects, in one way or another, the life of every person on earth, and especially the life of the child of God. This battle is real. This enemy is real. He is roaming, and he seeks to devour when we look out at our world, far away and close, we see the effects of evil and sin. When we get a little closer and look within our own church, within our own neighborhoods, within our own homes, we see the same thing. It's a real battle. When we take it even closer and we're honest before the Lord, we see the wages of that war in our own life. It's real. He's roaming. He wants to devour. At the center of this battle is the identity of Jesus Christ. At the center of this battle is the identity of Jesus Christ, his person. Who is he? His work. What did he do? What is he doing? What will he do? In this spiritual battle, what is being fought over what is being fought for the glory of God 
and the salvation of his people, the church. And though this battle, the word of God tells us, is not against flesh and blood, it is a battle about flesh and blood, about the flesh and blood of Jesus. That leads us to this study, and it leads us to this text in the Gospel of Matthew. To help you understand what we're about to read, Jesus has been walking around the earth. He's now in his third year of ministry. He's 33 years old. And Matthew 15 tells us that crowds are following him. And the crowds following him are bringing people who have been impacted by this war. And that's all of us. Sin. But sin manifesting itself in their own sin, but also just in living in a broken world where things go really bad. In Matthew 15, Matthew says, great crowds came to Jesus, bringing with them the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others. And they put them at Jesus' feet. So just picture that. How many? Thousands. We know there are thousands because these crippled, blind, mute, and lame began to see and walk and speak. And they glorified the God of Israel. And then something happens. Jesus looks out at the crowd and we're told that there are 4,000 men plus women and children. And he says to his disciples, they've had nothing to eat. Now three days and have nothing to eat. And it says, Matthew tells us, that Jesus had compassion on them. Isn't that beautiful? He looks out at the thousands. There's probably a thousand people in here right now. He looks out at the thousands, maybe eight or 10, and he sees that they need food and there's compassion. The disciples don't know what to do because Jesus says, feed them, though they've done this before. He hears the disciples say, where are we going to get enough bread to feed so many in such a desolate place? And Jesus said to them, how many loaves do you have? They said, seven and a few small fish. And directing the crowds to sit down, Jesus took the seven loaves and the fish and he broke them into pieces and began to distribute them. And the story tells us that all ate and were satisfied. And then seven basketfuls of broken pieces were left over. That really happened. That's what we believe, because we believe the Bible. The people then were told that they're dismissed by Jesus to go back wherever it is they've come from. They've seen miracles after miracle after miracle. And after sending away the crowds, Jesus got into a boat and went to the region of Magadan. Then Jesus encounters the religious people, the religious leaders, the Pharisees and the Pharisees, the men who have made more to the law of God, more ways and things that are required to come to God. And Matthew tells us that the Pharisees and Sadducees are seeking to test Jesus, so they ask him to show them a sign. And he answers them, when it is evening, you say it will be fair weather for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be stormy today for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the time. You 
an evil and adulterous generation seek for a sign, but no sign will be given except the sign of Jonah. So he left them and departed. He was saying, you don't see. I am the sign. I am the one. But they were trapped in their religion. The reason this is important is because now he gets in the boat with the disciples. And he's going to tell the disciples that they also don't see. Because he's going to say to the disciples, beware the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. The disciples hear that, and they begin to discuss with one another why they have no bread. They forgot bread. Think about that. The man who just fed 10 to 12,000 people with a little bit, the one who calls himself the bread of life is in the boat with them, and yet they're arguing about bread. And Jesus says to them, do you not yet perceive? Do you not remember the five loaves or the seven loaves? How is it that you fail to understand that I did not speak about bread? Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. This constant sense of dullness, this constant sense of missing what's right in front of you is happening. And then Jesus, with the disciples, get off the boat. And he asked them two questions which are at the essence of this spiritual war. Let's stand for the reading of God's word. Matthew 16, 13 to 23. As I read, picture the scene. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. This is the word of the Lord. Please, uh, please be seated. Father, I am very grateful to be here in this church. Thankful for the freedom we have to preach your word. Aware of the enemy, we come and ask 
for protection, for freedom from distraction and doubt and whatever else, Lord, he might throw at us that we might not believe or believe fully. Lord, would you cause us to rest right now in you and trust you? And would you speak to us from your word and encourage us? We need it. We thank you for it in advance. In Jesus' name, amen. So this battle is not against flesh and blood. That's what the word of God says. But it is about flesh and blood, about the flesh and blood of Jesus. Because at the center of this spiritual battle is the identity of Jesus, the person and work of Christ. So as I walk through this text, I wanna focus on the identity of Jesus, the building of his church, and the work of Satan. The identity of Jesus comes to the forefront in Matthew's gospel when he brings these two very important questions to the disciples. The crowds have been dismissed. He's had his conversation with the Pharisees and Sadducees, and now he says to the disciples, who do people say I am? Who do people say the Son of Man is? It's a question of identity of his person. And so they speak. They, it doesn't tell us which one of the disciples or which ones of the disciples say, some say John the Baptist. And there were those who believed that after John had been beheaded, that Christ really was, John essentially resurrected. Some say Elijah. They trusted that Elijah promised to come and so they were looking for Elijah. And others say maybe Jeremiah or one of the prophets. What's important to note is what they don't say. None of them say the crowds are saying, you are the son of God, the Christ, the Messiah, the promised one. You don't hear that. Just like today, what do the crowds say about Jesus? In your place of work, on your street, in your school, on boards you sit on, what do the crowds say about Jesus? Many will acknowledge that he was a good man. Maybe he was a prophet. Some will talk about him being a rebel, and some think that's good and others not. What do the crowds say that you're around? But then the question turns from what do the crowds say about Jesus to what do you say about the Son of Man? Who do you say that I am? And now Peter speaks. And Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. What Peter is saying is that you are the Messiah. You are the promised one. You are the savior. And more than that, you're the son of the living God. You're God and God is alive. Now listen to what Jesus says next. Jesus speaks directly to Peter and says, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. That's very significant. The battle is not against flesh and blood, but it is about flesh and blood. 
It's about the flesh and blood of Jesus. And when Jesus asked the disciples, who do the crowd say I am and who do you say I am? When Peter speaks, he gives the right answer. The identity of Jesus is at the center of this battle, his person and work. And Jesus says, who are you? You are the Christ. You are the Messiah. You are the promised one. You are the son of the living God. He got it right. But why did he get it right? He got it right because something greater than himself that was not flesh and blood revealed it to him. It wasn't Peter's own wisdom. It wasn't Peter's own study. It wasn't even Peter's own witness. It was God himself. Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, son of Jonah, for this was revealed to you, not by flesh and blood, but by my Father, and you got it right. Here's what that means for us. Who do you say Jesus is? If today you have entered this place and you believe that Jesus is who he says he is in Scripture, and you have trusted him for salvation, that he alone is the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one comes to the Father except through him. You believe that because something other than flesh and blood revealed it to you. The Holy Spirit, at whatever age you confessed faith in Jesus, revealed that to you. It may have come through the means of a sermon, or a mother, or a father, or a sister, or a camp counselor, but it was God behind the scenes, invisible, at work, causing your dead heart to suddenly beat for God, causing your blind eyes and deaf ears to suddenly see and hear that Jesus is who he says he is. What that means is that anyone who is in Christ must simply live in the posture of absolute humility. This was revealed to Peter the identity of Jesus and the identity of Jesus for all who believe in him as the Savior, Christ the Messiah, is also from God. The Holy Spirit has the work of illumination, causing his word to come alive to us that we might see and believe. The Holy Spirit is the one who persuades and enables us to embrace Jesus as he is offered in this great salvation, this great gospel. And so if that's happened in your life, be humble and be thankful. It's not from flesh and blood. It's from something far greater. It's the Spirit of God. If today you are here, and this is all brand new to you, you've never heard things like that. In fact, you're a little bit shocked that we even talk about the devil. I want you to know how welcome you are. You may be offended or confused or curious, I just want you to know you're welcome. You may be on the journey to having this revealed to you that Jesus really is who he says he is. He really is the Savior, Christ, the Messiah, the promised one. But if you believe already, be humble because he's the one who's revealed it to you. As soon as Peter has the right 
idea about Jesus revealed, Jesus blesses him. And then he begins to speak about the building of his church. He says, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock, it's a play on words, his name's Petra, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. What's the most significant thing in that statement? It's the shortest word, my. I will build my church. We are a church called Park City's Presbyterian Church. And we are a small C church that belongs to the capital C church, the whole church. The apostolic, universal, Catholic is what that means, church. We are one, though we're a large church, small expression of his church. And the thing that we must never forget that it's not my church, it's not your church, it's his church. Peter, on this rock, I will build my church. Take great hope and encouragement in that. And then what he says next. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Listen to that. Jesus' own words. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. When we look at our world, broad and then closer to home, when we look at our school, our places of work, our street, even our church, it's easy to feel like evil is prevailing. But Jesus has told us, God has told us, the gates of hell will not prevail against his church. Now, when we hear about the spiritual warfare, and we know that Paul, just after he described these principalities and dominions and, and heavenly forces, we tend to think that the church's posture is primarily to be defensive. And there is a defensive posture in the spiritual armor. We're to hold up the shield of faith, which is able to extinguish every flaming arrow of the enemy. Do you hear that? Every flaming arrow, not just some, but every. It's a defensive posture. But when he speaks of his church prevailing against the gates of hell, gates are not offensive. Gates are the enemy's posture. The gates of hell aren't moving. And what Jesus is saying, as I build my church, as I extend my church, as I advance my kingdom, the gates of hell cannot prevail. The church is not just an institution that's playing defense. It is a body of believers. That's actually what the word church means. It means gathering. And this is only one of two places Jesus even uses the word church anywhere in the Bible. It's a gathering of people, his people, and they're advancing with the cause of making known the truth about the identity of Jesus, his person and work. And he says, his words, I'm building my church and the gates of hell will not prevail. What hope? But the gates of hell, the enemy Satan, his demons, and why we're looking at this over the next few weeks, is they're gonna try. 
and they're going to be active. And they are real, and they are roaming, and they seek to devour. They wound, they hurt, they tempt. And you see it even here. Immediately after Jesus speaks to Peter about the advancement of his kingdom, the building of his church, immediately as he, after he speaks about the gates of hell not prevailing, he then speaks about his own flesh and blood. The war we're in is not a battle against flesh and blood, but it's about flesh and blood. It's about the flesh and blood of Jesus. And in verse 21 of 16, Jesus says, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Jesus is speaking about what's going to happen to his flesh and his blood. And Peter will have none of it. Peter says, after taking Jesus aside, just picture that. Verse 22, Peter took him aside and began rebuking Jesus, the one who had revealed to him the right truth about who Jesus is, his person. You are the Messiah. You are the Christ. You are the son of the living God. Now takes that man that he just said is God, pulls him aside and rebukes him. He says, Lord, may it never be. Far be it from you, Lord. The New American Standard translates it this way. God, may it never be, Lord. Peter knows he's God, but he cannot comprehend his mission. This is not what he or anyone had in mind for what Jesus was here to do. He believes in the person of Christ in his identity, but he can't understand or embrace the work of Christ and what's going to be necessary for Jesus to build his church, his kingdom. Far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. And Jesus, the one who just blessed Peter, says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. It's not a metaphor. It's not an illustration. Satan was there. Just as he was in the garden with Eve, he's in this place with Jesus and Peter. Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your minds on the things of God, but on the things of man. The word hindrance means stumbling stone. The one called the rock is now a stumbling stone to the mission of God. The one who understood the person of Christ, his identity as a person. You are the Christ. You are the son of the living God. Cannot comprehend the mission of God. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. When's the last time you rebuked Jesus? probably wasn't that long ago. 
you probably didn't imagine yourself pulling Jesus aside and speaking so boldly with exclamation marks. But yet, when God's will didn't match yours, when what was happening around you, you, you couldn't make sense that God would allow this to happen. And there's a lot of things like that. It's very easy for us to say in one sentence, he is God, he is Christ, he's the Messiah. And in another breath, say I'm not on the same page. Some of those who followed Jesus closely were on the same page with him until he said, in order to follow me, you must eat my flesh and drink my blood. And on that day, many said, that teaching is too tough. I'm not going to follow it. Are there teachings in Jesus' holy word that you just think are too tough? That's how the enemy works. Because at the center of this battle is the identity of Christ, his person and his work. It is not a battle of flesh and blood but it is about flesh and blood and it's about the flesh and blood of Jesus. And what Jesus was saying to Peter is that unless my flesh is destroyed, unless my blood is spilled, the sacrifice that is necessary for this church to be built for my father's glory, it can't happen. And so yes, get behind me, Satan. Because Satan wants you to set your mind on the things of man, and you're doing so. I want you to set your mind on the things of God. The things of God, dear friends, are not always going to make sense to us. And when we see a world far away or very close, in the family or inside each of us, Struggles like Paul himself had when he said, what I do, I don't want to do, and what I do want to do, I don't do. We need to remember the person and the work of Jesus. And in those moments, we must ask him to reveal again the truth of who he is and what he's doing, what he still promises to do, and what he has done. And one of his promises laid here is that the church will be built and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. If you are in Christ, you are absolutely now a part of his church. And that can never be taken. It will last with you forever. If you this morning are here and then once again, this is all new. It's possible that the Lord brought you here today so he could re begin to reveal to you what flesh and blood can't reveal. That Jesus Christ is God. He is the one true Savior, the one you need. If you know him today, 
And every day, on into eternity, ask him to help you be humble. He's the one who revealed it to you. And ask him to make you hopeful. Hopeful when all hell is breaking loose around you. Hopeful when you can't make sense of what's happening. Hopeful when you don't know how you're going to make it to the next day or even the next hour. You're his. Hope in him and his promises. The gates of hell will not prevail against us, his church. Father, Thank you for your word. Thank you for your flock. Thank you for the good shepherd. Thank you for the Holy Spirit. Thank you for humbling us. And thank you for making us hopeful. And as we close with a very familiar anthem, would you keep us present, spiritually present, to believe the very things that we're singing, that they might cause us to leave this place humble and so hopeful. In Jesus' name, amen.